0: Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. Learning learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And when you get there, um, I'll read aloud. You can, you can just listen. The Apostle Paul says this, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Before we go any farther, let's just pray and ask God for his help and understanding and applying this word. Father God, thank you for this letter and for the instruction that you give to us in it. I pray, Lord, that as we meditate on the ministry that you've called us to, Lord, that you would um, you would uh, allow us to kind of capture a vision similar to what the Apostle Paul had, one that is absolutely committed to your activity being the center of our work. God, I pray that you would remove any distractions from us this morning. God, I pray that you would just uh, uh, remove the, the burdens uh, that might uh, pull our hearts away from your word and instead let us, let us receive it and Let us walk away as doers of the word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was uh, intrigued last night as I was reading the news to see that uh, Brooklyn Nets star or uh, guard Spencer Dinwiddie has a desire to uh, discover, begin, start a new kind of investment class. He wants to make money and this new kind of investment, and that investment is himself. See, Dinwiddie plans is is fascinated at at, at in finance in general, uh, cryptocurrencies and investments and the stock market and all that kind of thing. And so, what he wants to do is he wants to find a way to take his his skill, his brand, his person, and turn it into something that other people can invest in and get some kind of some kind of return on it. And so, I think the basic idea if I understand correctly, is that people are going to give him increments of $150,000, which I'm also starting an investment like this, and so uh, you are welcome to pass along your cash. $150,000 $150,000 for basically a share of his future earnings with his contract with, with the Nets. And, and it will work something like a bond that as he goes uh, uh, throughout his contract, people will get a payout on this, on this uh, uh, investment, and then at the end, they'll get their money back and they will have earned some interest, and then in the meantime, he will have been able to use all of their money. Seems like a good idea. And I was struck as I was reading this that in, in ministry, we can fall into a very similar uh, and, and subtle deception. I, I, I want to clarify, I'm, I'm all for him making money off his brand and all that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about Dinwiddie anymore. But in ministry, it's different. In ministry, we can begin to think that we are the investment that we are the investment, that we are the asset that people should be looking to and putting their hopes in and finding their returns from. We begin to think that the whole enterprise begins to hinge on, on whether or not we perform, on our own expertise, on our own ability, on our own future returns. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is having a debate about precisely this issue. He's in a position where he's having to defend his ministry against opponents who are, are undermining Paul's apostolic authority, and they're pointing to all of the weakness in the, the Apostle Paul, all of his suffering that he's enduring. And he's saying, look at this guy, surely this guy is not the one you're going to follow, right? And instead, these, these kind of maybe super apostles or these, these religious leaders are coming into the Corinthian church behind the apostle Paul and they're putting on displays, uh, uh, displays of power and, and, and these le- re- religious, like, legalistic adherence to the law and saying, this instead, look at how we're doing this, this surely is a better way to go. They've, they've pursued a ministry that puts them and their expertise and their exceptionalism and their impressiveness at the center of everything. And they've contrasted themselves with the Apostle Paul, who is, is none of those things. And this has put Paul in a very difficult and awkward position. Paul is now in a position where he is concerned for the spiritual well-being of his his children in the faith in, in Corinth, and he wants them to stop listening to these false teachers. But in order to do so, he feels like he's backed up against a corner, and he's forced to, to kind of build himself up and say, look how great I am if he's going to downplay and counteract their arguments. And so Paul goes about the work of defending his ministry. And that's what we get with so many chapters in 2 Corinthians is this defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. But what he refuses to do is to make himself the asset. What he refuses to do is is to capitulate to their even framework of thinking about ministry and, and make this about himself. And so instead, what he wants to do is defend his ministry, but do so in such a way that highlights, that elevates the grace of God rather than his own inherent superiority. You can see the beginning of this coming in chapter 3, verse 4. He says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And this this idea of not my sufficiency, but God's, is precisely what he picks up in chapter 4. You see it there in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God... He's he's setting up everything that's about to come down the chute by saying everything that we do, everything about my apostolic ministry needs to be understood in light of the mercy of God. So the main idea I have for you this morning is that God's mercy to us in Christ, in the gospel, is the, the foundational and the controlling principle for everything that you and I do in ministry. God's mercy to us in Christ is foundational, and it's the controlling principle for all of our ministry. And what I mean by the mercy of God is not strictly speaking, not just in the narrow sense of his his kindness to those who are hurting or something like that. What I mean is in the broad sense, his mercy, his grace, his supernatural intervention on this weak and worthless man, the Apostle Paul. It is in light of, of this gracious God's intervention in Paul's life, in light of His mercy, in light of, of having this mercy by this ministry by God's mercy, everything that he's going to tell us moving forward is he's, he's explaining and defending his ministry only to be understood as something that comes from God. And so he was in a position where he was tempted and drawn and inclined to build himself up. And he's going to say, I will not go there, but I will defend my ministry. And here's how I'm going to do it. Don't look at me. But instead, I want to point you to the mercy that I have received from God. Over and over again, he's highlighting the mercy of God in his ministry. In chapter 3, we don't have time to read it, but he, he talks about how the work of the Spirit is, is the, is, is the, the, the uh, foundation. It's what his ministry depends on in his preaching. The, the things that we're trying to do, humans can't do that. These apostles, these, these false teachers that are creeping in behind and they're, they're puffing themselves up, you know what they can't do? They can't change hearts. The Spirit can do that. They don't have in, within them the power to transform sinners from death to life. I don't care how impressive they are, I don't care how cool they are, I don't care how, how learned they are, they can't do what the Spirit of God can do. And from the outset, brothers and sisters, I just, I just need to, to warn you, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, you need to decide. Will your ministry be done in desperation for the grace and mercy of God? Or will it be done based on your own human impressiveness? That's the contrast that we have here. On what basis will you do ministry? And I think I think you need to think about this in two different, we have to think about this in two different layers. I think we have to think about it on a macro level, which I think most of us right here would obviously say we are going to do ministry on the basis of the mercy and grace of God. I'd ask for us to raise our hands, but I don't want to make anybody feel awkward. I think we would all say that, right? We're we're on board with doing ministry by the grace and mercy of God, right? The problem comes is that, that that macro determination will be tested daily. When someone from your church walks into your office and they're having trouble raising their child your commitment to do a supernatural ministry will be tested. When a lost person is asking questions about what they can get out of Christianity, your commitment to do a a supernatural, grace-filled, mercy-motivated ministry will be tested because you can say a lot of things to make the sale. When you're leading your small group, when you're on the mission field, when you're strategizing, your macro commitment to do grace-filled ministry will be put to the test. There is not only a once-for-all commitment to do this kind of mercy or ministry by the mercy of God, there will be a daily micro-testing of your commitment to do ministry by the mercy of God. It is not something one and done. It is something we revisit. And so, from our text this morning, I want, I want you to see five truths about ministry that is founded on and controlled by the grace and mercy of God in this text. The first one is that ministry by the mercy of God sustains our hearts. Paul says in verse 1 Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Paul. Is is taking body blows for the sake of the Corinthian church. I mean, everywhere he turns, he's just getting his weaknesses and his failures thrown in his face. You can see it all throughout. He's very aware of his suffering in 2 Corinthians, isn't he? If you've got, got a Bible, turn to chapter 6, verse 4. There's this crazy passage, right, where Paul is just deciding that the best use of his time is to enumerate all of his hardships, Right? He says in chapter six, verse four, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And what do you expect to follow that? Right, what would you expect to follow this commending of ourselves in every way? It might be his learning, his, his faithfulness. Maybe he's just a, a, a plotter and he's like, at least I got something going for me and that I'm, I'm just kind of steady and faithful. No, what he, what he says is this, by great endurance in afflictions, In hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul's endurance for the Corinthian church seemed to know no bounds. He was very aware that his, his commitment to do this kind of ministry was going to cost him a lot. We don't have time to, to look further down. I wish we did. I wrestled with preaching all of chapter four, but we just don't have, don't have time for it. But if you look down in verses seven and following, really, if you look in verse eight, he says, "We are affli- this is chapter four, going back to chapter four. He says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. What a description of his life. When you you look at Paul, right, he is always carrying in his body the death of Jesus. You ever looked at somebody, maybe that's sick with a double ear infection and saying, you look like death? You'd probably wanna know that person, maybe be related to them, that kind of thing. But you get the idea, you look like death, right? Everybody could look at Paul and be like, you look like death, specifically Jesus' death. Paul was very aware of the beatings he was taking. It was a a general suffering that he was undergoing and his opponents were looking at this and saying, is this this the guy that you wanna follow? He was also enduring personal accusations from these opponents. They were going after him. And yet, Paul was was absorbing these things and and trying to continue to fight for the Corinthians. Why? Why would he do such a thing? You can see a hint in chapter 4, verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Why would Paul do this? It was for their sakes, and ultimately for the glory of God. But we might ask, how? How was it that Paul was able to endure all of this? He tells us right here in chapter 4, verse 1, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart knowing fundamentally that this mercy, this lot in life, this calling, this suffering, this persecution was for him a gift from God. He does not lose heart, not because he looks at his suffering and says, this is awesome. But ultimately, because he had a firm belief in the God who calls him to this work. Over and over again, he wants us to say, to, to realize that there is a sustaining effect of the mercy of God in his life. He says again in verse 16 So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. How is it that Paul is able to endure? It's an utter confidence that what we see with our eyes and what appears to be true on the surface is not all there is. Underneath and underlying it all was the mercy of God that was a sustaining influence. He was utterly convinced that a ministry founded on human impressiveness and human achievement and human accomplishment would ultimately fall short in the goal of producing in the Corinthians the righteousness of Christ. But he was also utterly convinced that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul knew that his suffering was ultimately by the mercy of God because the God that called him would bring him to completion. He was carrying out a work that he'd begun in calling Paul to himself in Damascus and that he was was bringing about to its end. And so friends, fellow ministers, I want to ask you, what is your plan for sustaining your ministry when opposition comes? When difficulty comes, when everything hits the fan, when believers start denying the faith, when friends leave, when neighbors slander, when spouses cheat, what will sustain you? What will you hold on to? For for the Apostle Paul, it was the reality and the awareness that he had received this ministry by the mercy of God. A ministry whose foundation is your own excellence will crumble under the weight of suffering. If you're going into the ministry relying on your learning, your degrees, your experience, it will crumble. But a ministry that is founded on the God who saves, sustains, and sanctifies to the uttermost will not lose heart. Ministry by the mercy of God it sustains our hearts. The second thing I want you to see is that ministry by the mercy of God, it, it shapes our methods. It's not just this, this heart thing that Paul is interested in. He makes a very clear point in verse two. He, he, he knows that we have an inclination to do something that's very disingenuous, and that is to say that our hearts are desperate and dependent on the work of God. And yet, for our ministry to use means and methods that undercut and overshadow that power, there is an inclination that we have to say, in my heart, what I'm really doing is I'm depending on the Lord, but if we can just use gimmicks over here or trickery over here or deception in this way, then we can bring about the results that we want and we provide this subtle. Now, it's never that explicit, is it? But we provide this subtle distinction between, between the message that we have in a God who is doing something supernatural and the means that we use. And Paul utterly rejects this bifurcation of message and means. They, they were tied together for the apostle Paul. And it was in fact for Paul the integrity between message and, and, uh, message and methods that was his, his own self-condemnation. Rather than, rather than boasting in his own ability, rather than saying, look at me, look at all that I've accomplished. I mean, these, these apostles were, were getting letters of recommendation from elsewhere. They were saying, just go talk to the guy down the road. We did some crazy stuff down there. Just go talk to him. And Paul's saying, here's my letter of recommendation, is that I, I will not boast in my ability I will not try to use means and methods to get you to trust me if, if my message is trust God. Three ways that we see this integrity between message and method in, in his ministry just in this one verse. Two of them are positive, one of them is negative. He says that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. That's the first one. The second one is that we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. And then positively, what he states is, by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Paul is saying, I will not entertain a kind of ministry that preaches grace and the power of God to save, but in practice, acts like everything depends on me. Acts like I can be the one to manipulate or twist or coerce. And so we're going to renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. We're not going to mess with and tamper with the Word of God as we even proclaim that the Word of God is what changes hearts. It just doesn't fit. And people can, they can smell a rat, can't they? If you're preaching a gospel that says God saves, His Word is powerful, but all of your ministry relies on gimmicks and tricks, we know there's a disconnect there. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I won't have it. The mercy of God in me, this mercy that I've received, it's not just something that warms my heart, it also directs my methods. You can turn over, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is something Paul is very consistent in, that there's a connection between methods and and, and message. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we can divorce the two. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, when and I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because my message was a crucified Savior, because what I'm saying is your hope, your future, your eternal security is wrapped up in a man who was crucified. I'm not gonna come and say, look how awesome I am. Instead what he says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. I didn't wanna do anything that distracted from this message that the power is wrapped up in a crucified king, not in the impressiveness of this messenger. Friends, we have got to think long and hard about the methods that we use in our ministry Sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's unintentional, but there is a way that we can go about the work of ministry and do so in such a way that undercuts the power of the gospel that we preach. And Paul says, I want nothing to do with those things. Ministry, by the mercy of God, it shapes our message. There's a container that the gospel comes in and it's in a a broken vessel in one who suffers, in one who is beaten. That's why in the next passage we talk about, Paul talks about having this treasure in jars of clay because the impressiveness, the beauty of this message is not in the container, it's what's inside. If we spend our time, ourselves, our, our time and our energy trying to, trying to improve ourselves and make ourselves impressive, you know what might, might be the only thing we accomplish and that is clouding the gospel that we preach. May it not be so of us that we are those who, who undercut, undercut our ministry and the message of Christ by going about it, not dependent on his mercy, not rejoicing in the, the supernatural nature of it, but instead putting it all on our feet and saying, I got this. I got this. The third truth I want you to see is that ministry by the mercy of God explains our opposition. The supernaturalness of our ministry explains the fact that not everyone does or will receive our message. That's the argument that Paul begins to make in verses 3 and 4. Some are going to argue that Paul's failure to basically be successful in ministry is kind of indicative of the fact that, A, he's not the guy, and the message that he's preaching is not that impressive— Paul anticipates the objection and, and does one of the old, like, well, actually. Right? You, you know a well-actually person? Everybody knows these people. I've got a four-year-old son, and he's already an actually guy. And I'm like, buddy, you don't, you don't wanna be that. You don't wanna do that when you grow up. So I say, well, actually, when he corrects me wrong and, uh, and try, to, try to throw it back in his face, he doesn't get irony yet, and so it doesn't quite land on him, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna win eventually. It's a good way of thinking about parenting is just this battle. Anyway, so Paul anticipates, anticipates this objection and says, they're, they're going to say that my failure basically to win everybody is indicative of maybe my failure or maybe the failure of my ministry and my, my message and that kind of thing. And, and he says, I, w- I want to turn that on its head. It says in verse 3 of chapter 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Actually, he says, we know that not all will believe. We know that this isn't going to be something where everyone is believing, but the responsibility for their lack of belief doesn't fall on the apostle Paul. It falls on sinners and Satan himself. Paul had reminded the Ephesians in chapter six, verse 12, for the, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here in 2 Corinthians, he, he doubles down. The opposition that we fundamentally, re, that we receive, the, the, the rejection that is coming at us, is not fundamentally due to our failure or our lack, It is not because of our inability to impress or persuade or otherwise win, but rather it was because the ministry that we have is absolutely desperate for something supernatural to happen, and there is one who is interested in stopping it. Isn't it interesting here? He doesn't necessarily go into this developed theology of original sin and total depravity or anything like that. He says one of the reasons that our ministry doesn't, in a sense, work with everybody is because there's an enemy, and he's coming against us. That, friends, does not lead to a ministry that says, do better, try harder, be more impressive— the reality that there is a God of this world who is blinding the eyes of unbelievers leads us to a ministry that is desperate for mercy. It is desperate for the intervention. You get the image here, right? There is the God of this world who is, who is blinding their eyes. What, what, is the, what is the hope of you and me? Right, like what, let's just be honest, right? Let's have a moment of self-awareness, right? If Paul is not impressive, we just have to own that. If Paul is not impressive enough and Paul can't lean into saying, Satan is blinding the eyes of unbelievers, but if I, if I can just come up with the trick, then surely I can, I can lift the veil. I can open their eyes, I can release their blindness, but no, that's not what the Apostle Paul does. If perishing people are going to have the veil lifted so that they can see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, it's going to happen because someone stronger than the God of this world lifts it for them so that they can behold his face. And that drives the Apostle Paul to a, a ministry that is founded on and desperate for the mercy and the grace of God. Just started kind of teaching my kids through the Bible. The other, the other night I was teaching the creation story and I was trying to, to highlight and emphasize the, the, the craziness of creation. And my daughter, about three year old daughter, I was trying to get them to think about how God could just speak and there would be light. And her face, she's, she's got a little kind of round, chubby face. She was like this. And I told her to kind of speak at the, the head fan up there and just try to get her to turn the light on, or off, I guess, in this case. And she was like, turn off. And it didn't work. And you could see the wheels start to turn. One of the things that creation story gives us is the realization that God is supremely powerful That he is not just the God of this world, but he is the God of all things Paul is keenly aware We ought not be surprised by opposition people are perishing their minds are shielded elsewhere He would say they're hostile in mind their God is protecting them Like the God of this world is shielding them away from this message and yet And yet, Paul doesn't find the answer in his own impressiveness. He finds the answer in a gospel of grace and mercy and supernatural intervention. That's the kind of ministry he was committed to. I will not lean into my own greatness to rectify this situation. Instead, I'm going to lean into my desperation for mercy. Because if anything is going to change this, it's going to be because someone stronger than the God of this world may be the one who made it will step in and lift the blind, lift the veil from the eyes of the blind. When you experience opposition in ministry, you will be tempted and it might be right to say, "What am I doing wrong? Where have I failed? Where did I go awry?" And that might be a legitimate question, but part of the answer might just be you are proclaiming something that depends on something supernatural happening. And there is active opposition against that. There is someone resisting. Paul says the ministry that depends on the mercy of God, it actually helps us understand this opposition. Now, I want to give a disclaimer. You can be a bad minister, okay? You can't just look at all opposition and being like, this is just me being faithful, okay? Uh, You might just be a goob, you know, like you might just be doing it wrong. Um, And I think there's a place for us to acknowledge it. So this isn't just like uh, ministers, and, and if you can like recite the gospel, then automatically you get a free pass, and this is spiritual warfare. No, you could be, you could be failing. But failure, opposition, people not responding to the gospel, sinners sinning, It is not necessarily an indicator that you are the one who's messing everything up. It might be an indicator that the God of this world is actively pushing back against the message of grace and mercy that you proclaim. When rejection comes, it it highlights our need for God's mercy. It highlights our desperation for him to do the work that only he can do. I find myself in, in pastoral ministry praying more and more that God would do the work that only he can do. It's it's a simple prayer, but I don't know how else to frame it. The work of changing hearts, the work of lifting veils, the work of revealing Christ, I can't control that, and that's what we're going for. Isn't Isn't it frustrating and amazing and beautiful that our ministry depends on something that is outside of our control, and it makes us desperate for this this kind of mercy, this kind of grace, this kind of supernatural intervention. And so, let me just move on. Fourth, ministry by the mercy of God, it, it focuses our message. This is kind of what I was just getting at. Verse four provides one of the most vivid pictures of salvation that we have in scripture. It's seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And it makes sense that if this is what salvation is, then Paul's message would focus on precisely this. You see it in verse five, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. This is where it's all kind of coming to a head, right? What we proclaim is not Shane Shaddix. We do not proclaim Southeastern Seminary. We do not proclaim Danny Aiken. We do not com- proclaim fill in your blank, favorite, fill in the blank, favorite preacher, minister, missionary, whatever. We preach Christ. Anything less is giving in to this framework of Paul's opponents. Anything less is missing the point. You go back to 1 Corinthians two, what do we preach? We preach Christ crucified. We don't just preach Christ, we preach a crucified Christ because we know that it's only in that message that the work that needs to get done can get done and it's outside of our control. It's totally dependent on the mercy, the grace, the supernatural intervention of God. Colossians 1, 28, Paul's summing up his ministry. Him we proclaim. What do we got? What do we got when the needs of the world come at us? We preach Christ. What, is it, what do we got when we encounter the, the lostness around us? We preach Christ. What do we have when people are coming and they need to be discipled? We preach Christ. We do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord. For the believer, for the unbeliever, for the, the American, for the African, for the Indian, for the, uh, uh, everyone, we preach Christ. We are not the message. We are not the asset, we are not the investment, Christ is. All of our ministry, it should not be very hard for us to draw between our ministry and the holding out of Jesus Christ. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. If people have to find that in our ministry, we've probably muddled things up a little bit. May it be that we're a people, uh, an army of ministers, people walk away. Maybe they don't buy what we're selling, but they at least understand we hold out Christ. Lastly, ministry by the mercy of God, it clarifies our role. If we're not the message, if we're not the ones that that we're directing everybody's attention to and saying, look at me, look at how great I am, look at my accolades, look uh, look at my degrees, look at my learning, all of that, then what are we? We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse six makes very clear, first and foremost, friends, we are recipients of mercy. We are the ones who have received this mercy. Right? This, this, mercy is, or this ministry is by the mercy of God because God has, has first and foremost bestowed his mercy on us. And he's shown into our hearts to give us a, a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you see Christ this morning, it is by the mercy of God, friends. And you never move beyond that status. You never move beyond being the recipient of mercy Right, to the focus and the message and the asset and the investment, that's not you. If you are the recipient of mercy, verse five clarifies, we get to become the agents of mercy. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We must never lose sight of our status, our role. And friends, what a privilege. What a privilege that we have as recipients of mercy to now be brought into this work and extend that mercy to others. Why would we wanna cloud it over? Why would we wanna cover it up? Instead, we have the opportunity to hold out, hold out this message, to hold out this mercy, to hold out this grace. We have this ministry by the mercy of God and because of that, we do not lose heart. We are not the message We are not the asset, we are not the investment, but Christ is, and he allows us, he invites us into holding him out to a world that desperately needs him. There's a lot of talk these days about mercy ministry. I hope what you see in this text is a commendation, an offering out of a different kind of mercy ministry, not where the the substance of the ministry is doing mercy to others necessarily, but a ministry that is fundamentally, convictionally, and thoroughly steeped in the supernatural mercy of God. Why would we want to do anything else? What better offering do you think you have for the world than holding out the mercy and grace of God? because he has held it out to you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for your kindness. God, thank you for showing us in the Apostle Paul, God, that there's nothing better we can move on to, there is nothing greater that we can can fabricate that would be a better uh, focus of our attention, our message, our confidence, our hope than what you've already given us in Christ. God, and I pray that for myself and for these brothers and sisters, the, the kind of work and the kind of ministry that we do would be fundamentally based on the mercy of God. The reality that you and your love have reached into our hearts. You've reoriented us and you've lifted the veil so that we can see the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God, may we be people who drip with the proclamation of your goodness. May our methods, may our hearts never distract away from that message so that the proclamation of your glory, so that thanksgiving may abound, so that you might receive the honor that you're due. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, Visit scbts.